It's the kind of heartbreak where you're like, do it again. Do it again. (laughs) Please turn the page. Do it again. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 141. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I want to share a fun email I received from Joy this week. She writes, we had some summer storms a couple weeks ago and lost power for a few hours one night. My 11-year-old and I decided to try an audiobook since we were limited on what we could do in the dark. I listen to audiobooks all the time, but she previously hasn't really enjoyed them. She loves funny, realistic fiction about kids her own age, and I remembered your suggestion of the Sammy Keys series on one of your What Should I Read Next podcasts. Well, she loved Sammy. We are now on our third audiobook, and this is becoming the summer of Sammy Keys in our home. Thank you for your recommendations. Readers, Joy is referring to episode 134 with Ben Huntington. That's audiobooks for the whole family to binge. And I'm so glad Joy and her family are. You can listen again or for the first time wherever you get your podcasts. That's episode 134. To tell us about how reading saved your dark summer evening or whatever you'd like, hit reply to our free weekly newsletter. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. That's whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, on our recent Ask Me Anything episode, I got lots of questions about recommending books for kids. When it comes to children's recs, I rely on people who know children's books, and Literati Kids sure does. Literati Kids is a book club subscription that sends five beautiful children's books to your door each month, handpicked by experts. They tailor each box with age-appropriate selections for children aged 0 to 12, and around themes like mystery, adventure, and history. My 10-year-old loved his Literati box and found several new favorite authors among their personalized selections. In addition to the books your child receives, Receives artwork from world-renowned artists, personalized stickers, and other fun goodies in each monthly box. Go to literati.com slash readnext for 25% off your first two orders and pick your kids' book club today. Remember, no one else has kids' book clubs like these. Only at literati.com slash readnext can you get 25% off your first two orders and receive five incredible kids' books curated by experts delivered to your door every month. That's literati.com slash readnext. Want a confidence boost? Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. Get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door starting at $22. This is game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon without the time or expense. At Madison Reed, master colorists blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. What Should I Read Next listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code READ. Use the code READ, R-E-A-D, at madison-read-r-e-e-d.com. It is no secret that I love a good discussion about personality frameworks, and I also love a good discussion about books and reading. So it should come as no surprise that merging those two topics is an absolute dream come true. And we are doing that today. I'm chatting with Ian Cron, noted Enneagram teacher, psychotherapist, and host of the Typology podcast, all about how our favorite literary characters, and maybe a few movie characters too, fit into the framework of the super hot right now Enneagram personality typing framework. If you don't know anything about the Enneagram, don't worry. This episode is totally newbie-friendly, and we will hold your hand the whole way. If you are super curious about the Enneagram after this episode and want to read more, I'm including lots of great resources in the show notes, which you can find at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 141. But I can tell you right now, you're going to want to check out Ian Cron's book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, and my book, Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything. Let's get to it. Ian, welcome to the show. Hey, Anne. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. As a fellow personality junkie, I am excited to talk books with you. What is it about people who love to read? I think that readers, in my experience, are way more likely to geek out about personality frameworks like the Enneagram than your typical person walking down the sidewalk. Is that fair or is that because I know a lot of readers? Let's face it, readers are curious about the interior terrain of human beings, you know, Mm -hmm. if they're reading fiction. And so it makes sense, all the sense in the world that they would be curious about what constitutes personality and character. Well, I am really excited to dive in today, not only to the Enneagram, because I really love a good Enneagram conversation, but also specifically how it pertains to the books I love to read. Me too. I can't wait. Were you an English major? 
I was not an English major. But you know what? I mean, I don't have like life regret about that, but I think I was unduly influenced by someone else's advice, Ian, because I'm a nine. But a couple people that I knew and trusted that were older than me said, if you want to continue liking those books of yours, you shouldn't spend four years dissecting them. And so I majored in something else. And sometimes I wish I'd had the experience of reading all the books in college, but I didn't. I'm reading them now. Lots of time to read all the books you could have read in college. So before we really get into all this, what is the Enneagram? What are we talking about? Uh, the Enneagram is an ancient personality typology, and it teaches that there are nine basic personality styles in the world. And, and all of us contain all nine of those types, mm-hmm. but, but we tend to be dominant in one of them, right? Each of those types, what determines, how do I say, your type or an individual's type is not so much traits and characteristics as is often the case in other typologies. Mm. It's really the underlying motivation that drives it. So each type has an underlying motivation, uh, let's say that exists below the waterline of consciousness for the most part, that drives behaviors and characteristics and traits that are above the waterline that, that everybody else gets to see and experience, uh, though you may not know what is this belief under the waterline that, mm-hmm. that maybe the engine, if you mm-hmm. will, the, the, the psychological engine driving it? That's what I love about the Enneagram is that particular dimension of it. So I'm a nine. Mm-hmm. Ever since I've known the Enneagram, I've wanted to type the fictional characters I read about. But the problem is, as a nine, I can make a strong argument for every character I know and love being uh, one of like seven types because I can see it. I can see it all the ways. What is that? What's going on there? Do other people feel this weird compulsion? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Nines have this uncanny gift for being able to see the world through everybody else's eyes, um, which is wonderful. When you're healthy, you can use that to mediate uh, difficulties between people or ruptures in relationship. I, some of the best songwriters here in Nashville that I know are nines. Tons of them that I know are nines. I think it's because they can tell a story through the eyes of all kinds of people. They just ex- they can see the mm-hmm. world. You know, nine is perched on top of the Enneagram diagram, and I think it's there for a reason. You just all can see everything, everything out in front of you on the horizon. Now, when you're healthy you're able to see through all nine types. When you're not very healthy or self-aware, you get to see through eight types. You get to see through everybody else's eyes except your own. <laughs> but seeing through everyone's eyes makes it really hard to say like, oh, this is this fictional character's type is a four. Do you feel like you have that issue? Um, you wrote a book about it. You've read, how, how many personality books do you think you've read in the last three years? Oh, I don't even want to tell you. And not even just, I mean, just psychology books and lots of books on personality and, you know, all this forest stuff. You know, I'm always reading books about what does it mean? Why are we here? (laughs) Why do we suffer? How do we make sense of our suffering? Blah, blah, blah. And then I, you know, I sit around my house all day and I get up in my head and down in my heart and wonder and wonder and wonder until I go out. And then I talk too much because I'm, you know. spend too much time alone. But you're very self-aware about all this. Well, I hope so. You know, I think all of us live to some degree or another on autopilot uh, when we're not careful. My goal would be to live as consciously as possible so that I have more freedom to be uh, in the world in the way that I'm supposed to be, you know, to fulfill the errand upon which I was sent here to perform. That's a Marilyn Robinson-ism. What is it about the Enneagram in fiction that compels so many people to want to type the characters they encounter in books? Well, I mean, the the Enneagram, unlike a lot of other typologies, Mm -hmm. is just so darn accessible. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere the other day, someone said something wonderful. They said, if I, oh, I know what it was. There's an article in the Parisian Review. And the, the person said, if you were a Martian and you wanted to figure out how to fit in on Earth, you uh-huh. would not use the Myers-Briggs, you would use the Enneagram. Because it's just easier to access, you don't mm-hmm. have to know any code, there's no, there's not a lot of crazy nomenclature, mm-hmm. you could just read descriptions of how people act, you know, these sort of constellations of behaviors and traits and motivations. And I'll tell you this, I, I think the other thing that makes the Enneagram interesting for film and, and books is usually in a book or a film, you're seeing the underlying motivation in a character's behavior and they aren't. And you're wondering the whole time, by the end of this book, are they going to see what's driving their nuttiness? Mm -hmm. It's their relationship with their dad. 
watching the underlying motivations of characters is what fascinates us. We're like, oh man, is that person going to see what it is that's driving patterns in their lives that are difficult for them? I've seen a lot of advice to authors writing books the past few years as personality frameworks. Um, really, they're having a moment, especially the Enneagram right now. What a lot of experts, heavy quotation marks there, are doing is advising authors to get familiar with Myers-Briggs or with the Enneagram so that they can create characters on the page that are true to life, that have realistic struggles. Yeah. But not everyone likes this advice, Ian. What do you think? I don't. <laughs> I definitely do not. Look, I wrote a novel once called Chasing Francis. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, is it Faulkner? No. But I did learn a lot about fiction. A writer of fiction is somebody who has an observer's eye and ear, um, is exploring the interior world of a person almost like you're grasping, like you're, you're kind of – you're trying to figure it out as you go. And if you have types in your mind, what you might end up doing is writing very two-dimensional characters that are not actually types but stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And that becomes kind of an insult to the reader and people are not types. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. in other words, what makes characters interesting isn't the traits they share with every other person of their type, but the way that they uniquely carry those traits. Uh, all the other things that affect the ways that we behave, disposition and temperament and experience and culture and, you know, race and gender. I mean, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like these collisions of forces. If you start messing around with stereotypes, I think you could end up being a very lazy writer. It's almost like um, rather than really explore, do the hard work of exploring and, and particularizing a character. You know, I'll just read on what fours are like. I, I think that's more interesting for an actor mm-hmm. to do or a screenwriter to do, but not for an author, not for a novelist. Okay, this is interesting. First of all, did you read a bad book? Did you hear this advice? You've clearly thought a lot about this. What prompted that? I was an English major. I actually was an English and romance language major, which mm-hmm. essentially was like having two English majors, except one was in Spanish. <laughs> I was reading novels in two different languages. I'm romanced by story. I, um, more corporate leaders, politicians should read fiction. If you, if you really want to understand human beings, mm-hmm. read fiction. Ding, dang it. Don't be sitting around reading books all the time on productivity. What a waste. You, you should be reading about human beings and the conditions they find themselves in. Human beings are so complex and wonderful and mysterious. What the Enneagram does is it reminds us we're a lot like a whole lot of people. We're unlike a whole lot of people. And in, and in other ways, we're unlike anybody else ever. I love it from that angle and I love it for its opportunity. It lends us to grow as human beings. But think about Dostoevsky for a second. Like think about crime and punishment. Think about characters in The Brothers Karamazov. Like that guy got up inside of people's heads like no other author I know. Like he got into the thoughts and the like the river of thought. Mm-hmm. of these different characters in a way that I've never read before, you know, without the use of any kind of outside personality type of, I feel like it, what it would have done is trapped them inside of a, a schema that would have been unhelpful and actually not very human. And yet you think it might be helpful for screenwriters, which is not interior. I think it could be. And, and maybe I should say too, for, like I said, for casting directors and for directors and actors, you mm-hmm. know, like if I were a director and I was, I would never tell an actor, Okay, I'm getting this from the Enneagram. Go home and read about threes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna play Jay Gatsby, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, go home and read about mm-hmm. threes. I would know it and I might say, so what is the underlying motivation do you think of Jay Gatsby? Like what is driving this life? What's beyond the fence of his awareness that's driving the way that he's living mm-hmm. his life? Tease out some features and facets. Of course, Fitzgerald has already done that for us in many, many ways, but mm-hmm. just to get them into character might be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Readers, if you love What Should I Read Next, you're going to love being part of our Patreon community. That's where we share bonus episodes, including follow-ups with previous guests, interesting conversations that were cut for time reasons, and one great book style episodes where I tell you all about recent reads that I adore. In addition to the extra audio, you get access to our super secret spreadsheet vault with a full list of all the books guests love and my three recommendations from every episode in an easy-to-search format. And on occasion, we get together live online for Ask Us Anything-style conversations and events like our 90-minute fall book preview and summer reading guide unboxing. Join for all these perks and to be part of the community behind What Should I Read Next. 
Go to patreon.com slash what should I read next. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what should I read next to become a member today. Patreon.com slash what should I read next. All right. Now three is not a traditional place to start when you're going around the circle, but we've got Jay Gatsby on the table as a three. Threes are called the performers. Some people call them the achievers. People who are, their underlying motivation is Oh, they have a need, a compulsive need to succeed at all costs, to avoid failure at all costs, and to continually give the appearance of success. Now, of course, the danger there is that they have this almost superpower shift their presentation or their persona in order to win the admiration of a crowd. They can have a chameleon-like sort of self-presentation when they're not very aware or healthy. I mean, he sort of embodies an iconic three persona. And I think Fitzgerald as an author, as a person, did as well. He came out of that world, you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of Long Island, Hamptons, uh, wealthy, northeastern elite world of, of power and wealth. So it's no wonder he was able to write about it so beautifully. Did Gatsby ever have a chance at a happy ending? Oh, gosh. Because he sounds doomed the way you describe him. He is doomed. <laughs> well, of course he does, because Fitzgerald wrote him. Well, let me ask you a question. Would it have been believable if he had not blown up? Oh, no, it's a great book. I wouldn't change that. But might it have been possible for him to step off the page and come back from that world that he had built for himself and find some kind of personal happiness and fulfillment in a non-tragic ending? Sure. He'd have been a heck of a lot less interesting. But, <laughs> because cause here's the other thing we're not talking about, yeah. right? We're not talking about here, and we, we, you know, we would probably have to do another whole another show on this, but he's not just a type, he's an archetype. And so he embodies a certain mythology. I mean, we see this character appearing over and over and over again, right, in different iterations. We never tire of these archetypes. It's like saying we never tire of genres. You know, it's like how many love stories can you read? Well, they basically all carry the same form. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. But every single one is a brand new one. It's like it just the whole genre got re, you know, reinvented in every single novel. And I think with Gatsby, yeah, sure, he could have woken up. And I think that's the big spiritual journey. It's like he could have woken up and caught himself in his own game. But he's a failed character and so complicated. And we, at the same time, empathize with him, which is what a great author does, right? Otherwise, we don't stick with the character unless we feel like, oh, I could have done it or I have done it in some way. Mm -hmm. We could explore the Enneagram as archetype because each of these types, you can find pieces of it in mythology. Mm -hmm. The mythology is the world that are so important to us. It would have ruined the novel, though, all to say it would have ruined the novel if the dang guy had woken up. Oh, that's a conversation we have at my house all the time, how you don't want to live a life that's worthy of being turned into a great novel because that is a disaster. Like terrible things are happening. No, you just want a nice, boring life that authors would pass right over because there's nothing to look at there. Okay, hold on. I don't know. I don't know. Not boring. I don't know. But not tortured. I love tortured characters, Ian. I don't want to be one. I mean, you know, who wants to read about somebody who's khaki? (laughs) (laughs) you know here's my neighbor they're very beige you know what i mean like it's like we all have these shadows that trouble us um whether others see them or not and yet there are characters like in wendell berry's novels or marilyn robinson's there's a certain peaceableness inside of those characters Mm -hmm. that are fascinating that make them very very delicious in some ways and beautiful those are two of my favorites right there oh they break your heart those characters break your heart they do But in the best way, it's the kind of heartbreak where you're like, do it again, do it again. (laughs) Please turn the page, do it again. I feel like this seems entirely appropriate to move around the circle and go to the fours from where we are now. Yeah, so fours are called the individualists, sometimes called the tragic romantics. Their underlying motivation is um, a need to be special and unique. And the reason is fours believe there's something fundamental and essential missing from their makeup that other people have, but they lack. And so they feel this sense of deficiency all the time. They're always comparing themselves to other people and feeling like they just don't fit. They're misfits, literally. They feel exiled from community. So they're always nose up against the glass, lots of melancholy, lot, they're not hard to disappoint, perpetually dissatisfied, always seeing what's missing. You know, they're the most complicated number on the Enneagram. 
a mystery to themselves and to lots of other people, lots of contradictions in them. When I think of fours in literature, I think of two of my favorite characters a lot. And you can, I've already told you I'm terrible at typing characters. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, so, me too. I mean, it's all speculation. I mean, are you of the school that nobody can really know your Enneagram type for sure, except you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, actually, I absolutely yeah. believe that's true, yeah. Which is why it's fun to speculate. They can't argue. All right, so I'm thinking, do you speak Jane Austen, Ian? Thinking Marianne Dashwood. Mm. Also, Anne Shirley. Love them both. Okay. It's been a long time. I'm in the interest of transparency. That goes back to my English major days. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about Marianne. Sensible and clever, but eager in everything. Her sorrows Mm -hmm. and joys could have no moderation. Four, perhaps? Could be. And remind me, bring it, bring it to my mind again. Sense and sensibility. She's the sensible, I think, type one, Eleanor's emotional, impulsive younger sister who feels that it is a fraud, an unbearable lie to not speak and act the way she feels in her heart when she feels it. Is she aggressive? She's in love, Ian, is what she Uh, is. Does she over-identify with her mood states? Yes, and she doesn't care if it's proper, if she feels it's right. And she doesn't care if people understand. Does she experience a complete, like sevens can only feel about half, you know, of the, the feeling spectrum, you know, like they just go from ecstatic to happy, but anything to the right of happy on the other side, <laughs> you know, just doesn't exist in their vocabulary. Does she have an emotional vocabulary that is wildly full and robust? Like she can go from ecstasy to agony, everything in between. Yep. Yeah, that sounds boring for sure. You know, when I think about four characters, Catherine and Heathcliff are sort of from Wuthering Heights. I mean, that's kind of a, I, we mentioned that in The Road Back to You, that in the movie version of that of that novel, where two of them have their nose pressed against the glass of the neighbor's house, looking in, <laughs> sad, <laughs> faces as if to say, we will never be part of this party. I have a couple. I think Asher Lev, maybe a four. I've never read Asher Lev. Oh, come on, Kaim Potok. Okay. On the list, on the English major list. There you go. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, Holden Caulfield. Oh, yeah. Charles in Brideshead Revisited. Uh-huh. Oh, gosh, it's one of my favorite novels of all time. Those are the ones I came up with for fours. I mean, there's a ton more. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list of authors who are fours is as long as my arm. That one I could give you forever on. I'm intrigued by your observation that so many authors are fours. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, and half of them end tragically. Sylvia Plath, Virginia Woolf. Hemingway was probably a four, although you could, I suppose you could argue that he was an eight. Tennessee Williams, Dostoevsky, I think, was a mm-hmm. was a four. Uh, Shusaku Endo, David Foster Wallace, although Foster Wallace might have been a five. There's a lot of fives and fours, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Fours because obviously they have this deep emotional connection that's almost overwhelming. And I think, by the way, many of those authors, and I could give, continue with the list, committed suicide. I mean, when you look at the list, it's not cheerful because I think they had so many feelings and so few ways to moderate them and keep them channeled well that even fiction couldn't keep up. That's really interesting. Okay. Tell me more about these fives. Yeah. Fives are called the observers or the investigators. Uh, I like observer now. I used investigator in the road back to you and I, you know, whatever. Everything. What, <laughs> what inspired you to change? Oh, because, I mean, I could go back and forth. I mean, you, there's a great case to be made for both, but they are the mm-hmm. most observant number on the Enneagram. And sometimes people have a stereotype in their mind about fives that they're all like scientists and they all have like, you know, pocket protectors and mm-hmm. they're super smart. Well, there are plenty of fives who are not smart, but they're all observant. Mm-hmm. Every single one is observant. They don't miss anything. The, the most analytical uh, number on the Enneagram, typically they have the appearance of aloofness. They look like loners and sometimes they are loners. They have a profound need to, this is their underlying motivation, to know, to understand, to fend off fears of being overwhelmed by the world by collecting are gathering vast amounts of information and knowledge, often about very niche subjects. And of course, you know, I'm giving you very, very short descriptions of each of these types. I happen to love fives. I know many fives Mm -hmm. uh, who've been friends. They're quirky. Fives with fours make amazing novelists. Fives are in the headspace on the Enneagram, but the four is in the heart space. So when you get a five with a four, you've got somebody coming at you with both barrels, both from the head and the heart. So the powers of observation blended with the, the deep sense of feeling is intense. I think characters like that might, well, obviously Sherlock Holmes, 
Mm-hmm. Did you ever read P.G. Woodhouse? I've read one. I intend to get to more. When I was about 12 or 13, we had lived in England, uh, and I was raised by a long story, but one might read it somewhere. <laughs> I was raised by a British nanny, and for, I mean, like my whole life. So I used to read a lot of British novels. The ones I loved were P.G. Woodhouse, which is like Worcester and, you know, Jeeves and Worcester, mm-hmm. you know, those characters, right? I think Jeeves is a five. I think England is very much a five country. I think a quintessential five could be Anthony Hopkins. Remains of the Day. Have you read Remains of the Day? That character is a five. And Anthony Hopkins plays him perfectly. When you watch him, there's this kind of detached, incredibly observant, slow to answer because thinking so hard. It's so beautiful. That character is extraordinary. And by the way, fours, we're the ones who carry Remains of the Day lunchboxes to school as children. (laughs) Maybe now Manchester by the Sea lunchboxes, but mm-hmm. we always carry remains of the day. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was such a thing, there should have been. All right, so I'd like your help with something that's been troubling me greatly, Ian. Okay, I've had Middlemarch on the brain for months. You should. It's a great novel. It's been an awful long time for me, but okay. I'm having a hard time with Dorothea, but I'm pretty sure her husband Kasabin is a five. So I'm going to describe to you their dynamics. Okay, and tell me what you think. Okay, so Dorothea is a 19-year-old orphan. She's got some money. She dreams of doing great things in the world. Mm-hmm. And that kind of throws me because she also strikes me really as a two. Because when she meets Kasabin, an older man, a scholar who's been working on his magnum opus for decades, she thinks, I'm going to marry him. This is my call to greatness. I will help him with his life's work. But... They get married and she finds out he just locks himself in his room, like piddling over the same words again. Like this is going nowhere. He's not actually writing a book anybody's going to read. He's a reclusive scholar who has no love of living, no love for her. She quickly becomes resentful, knowing she's bound to him by law, but does not want any part of this marriage. And so she's very lonely. She realized this project is crap. It's a sham. And she doesn't really want to be a secretary. So I think they might be a five and a two. I mean, I definitely think he's a five. Yeah. I mean, he's got fives get unhealthy, man. They can really hunker down and become very reclusive. She does sound like a two. She it's interesting though because she also sounds and I can't remember the whole story. What does she do in the end? Does she like totally ditch him and get spoiler alert? If you haven't read this novel that's over two hundred years old, you know, cover your ears. Does she get really rageful with him or anything? Does she? What happens? Oh, he dies. She gets incredibly lucky after some <gasps> what's going to happen suspense. Finds love again, but it looks dicey for a while. Yeah, well, you know, she also sounds like a nine. You know, it was just occurring to me as we were sitting here talking that because she's very idealistic and she is fiercely insistent on taking the high road, even when she realized that she's married to this jerk. Well, also because when you, the way you described her, she could also potentially have fused or merged with his life program instead of defining her own and following it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she gets behind him and becomes supportive of his work. Now, that also could be a historical and gender-based expectation at that time, right? Um, this is where it gets kind of interesting when you think about personality. You know, like what's the historical context? What's the cultural context? Uh, th- those things really matter. And, and again, we would have to really sort of try and get into her underlying motivation, like, why was she so supportive? Was it a cultural expectation? Was it a disposition? Was it a personality thing? Isn't that kind of what keeps you in the game in these novels? I mean, it's, it's sort of like, well, why do I keep turning pages mm-hmm. in a novel? Like, why, why don't I just give up on page 12 when I figure out who they are? <laughs> because a good novelist would never let you know about page 12. And in fact, the reason a good novelist wouldn't, I suspect, is because they don't know either. Like the character has not told them who they have to become yet. The character is going to tell them where they have to go. And if they don't take them there and allow them to do what they must do, the character will ring false and, the, and it will turn off the reader. And that's why Gatsby had to blow up at the end. If Fitzgerald had tried to make that a happier ending, we all would have gone BS. We would have called BS. Mm-mm. No, no, no. Gatsby did not tell you to do that. Gatsby has to be sad. Yeah. Well, I like to think that's how my favorite novels are written. And I'm reading this for book club in the fall and I will pay attention. You know, that's why I stay in novels. I'm trying to figure out why people make the same mistakes I do. 
It's fascinating. All right. Tell me about the sixes. Oh, man, I love sixes. Sixes, we think there are more sixes in the world than any other number. These people really struggle with fear, particularly in the form of anxiety. They have a need, their compulsive need, really to feel safe and secure and supported in the world. These are folks who have a lot of trouble trusting their own internal guidance system, you know, their ability to make decisions, their ability. So there's a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-questioning. They're fundamentally a little suspicious of people in the beginning. There's a lot of danger in the world and people have hidden agendas and they're they're worst case scenario thinkers. And like fives and sevens, these people are thinkers and planners. When they meet the world, not with the heart, but with the head, mm-hmm. five, six, and seven. So when they're healthy, like every number is mm-hmm. wonderful when they're healthy. But I have a particular affection for sixes because when they're healthy, they're incredibly funny. Um, <laughs> they're wildly funny people. I love them. When I think about sixes, I think about Bilbo Baggins, who does not want to go on an adventure. Totally. He wants to drink tea and eat elevensies. Can I actually just throw one in from a movie? Please, please. C-3PO from Star Wars <laughs> is the six. Yeah, he is. Or, you know, I mean, he's the That's only great. robot you ever saw who wrings his hands, you know, <laughs> like throws his arms up. We're doomed. We're doomed. You know, I love that. <laughs> Other sixes. Uh, well, I could give you an author, uh, a, a memoirist who definitely is a six is Anne Lamott. No question. She's a six. Interesting. She's really funny, Ian. She's really I funny. I know she's really funny. Like you, I've, I've met her and she is six, man. Here's how you can tell. They take the things that make all of us anxious and then they just bump it up by 5%. You know what I mean? Like they intensify it by 5% and you just start laughing because it becomes absurd. The anxiety becomes absurd. Well, I'm thinking of the last time I saw her speak on stage. She ended up telling the story about how she was so anxious what people would think about her back fat. And she meant the way she looked right. from the back. And so her story ended with turning around and basically flashing everybody and showing them her back fat. And it was it was a riot. But talk about turning your fears around. And then leveraging them. There's enough self-awareness that she's able to, to pull back, observe the anxiety, go, this is ridiculous. But I'm going to talk about it aloud because everybody wrestles with fear about their dumb back fat. But I'm the only one in the room who's willing to talk about it. Talk to her about flying one day. If you ever run into her and say, she hates flying. <laughs> so do I. Do I really want to hear that? I don't know. You know what I mean? She, <laughs> you know, there's all this stuff of anxiety around flying or around, you know, raising children. And, yeah. then, and then these these one-liners that drop are just fantastic. Now, here's an interesting idea. I was wondering if Wendell Berry might be six. And he actually may be kind of a counterphobic six because he's kind of aggressive. If you watch interviews with him, he's very outspoken. He's aggressive. His essays are are very outspoken. But he's very much about people and the land and loyalty and uh, community and, you know, various institutions and the things Mm -hmm. that hold us together. Mm -hmm. He sounds very sick to me. What do you think? Well, he has a book called The Way of Ignorance. And yet when we get outside the pastoral novels, one of the things I most love that he's ever written that makes me like giggle just thinking about it is his essay on why I don't own a computer. Yeah. We all have all the types in us. We can all be contrarian at times, but it's contrarian and also hilarious. You know, for those listeners who are not familiar with the Enneagram, sixes are the only number on the Enneagram that have two variants. One is the phobic six, which is sort of the one that would rather submit than rebel against authority. So they're, they're a little bit more in touch with their anxiety. The counterphobic six also has a torture relationship with authority figures, except they would rather rebel than submit. You know, they'll tear down an authority figure if they start to sense that they're a source of danger to them. So when you read Wendell Berry's poetry about government, corporations, you know, his critique of the man, if you will, Mm -hmm. that's very counterphobic stuff. It's not bad. I'm just saying it has that kind of flavor to it. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say he's an eight, which is an aggressive Mm -hmm. number that often gets confused with counterphobic sixes. Yeah, I can see it. First of all, I'm really sorry. You must be so tired of going around the wheel and like every conversation you ever have with anyone. I love that. Going around the Just wheel. Just like I'm no. step, I'm stepping on the ride. Here we go. See you in an no. hour. I, no, I totally love it. Okay, so sevens are the enthusiasts. They, their underlying motivation is to avoid psychological and emotional unpleasantness, difficulty, pain, kind of anxiety on the part of the sevens that they could get actually stuck 
inside of psychological pain or emotional pain. So they're always out in the future, never in the present moment, planning the new escapade, the new adventure. Uh, it becomes gluttonous, though, and, and excessive, narcissistic when it's unhealthy. Wonderful joy bombs when they're in a good space. Uh, they're like the wonder of the world. But Man, when they're not, they're just very self-interested people who it's all about, you know, girls just want to have fun, if you will. <laughs> the, sort of the icon of this in literature is Peter Pan. Oh. Yeah, I don't want to grow up. All about the adventure. It's all about fun. Even, you know, there's that amazing scene in Peter Pan. And I just, this blows my brains. He says, you know, remember when he's going to, he's talking about death. It's sort of a dark moment. And then he goes, death, wait, that will be the greatest adventure of all. And so here he is, he's thinking about death and the, the discomfort of thinking about that. All of a sudden, he's like, I got to reframe it and put a silver lining on mm -hmm. this thing to stay happy. Mm -hmm. And he actually turns death not into something that's frightening or something, but into an adventure mm -hmm. that fits his worldview, which is dysfunctional if you play it out as a 40-year-old man. In <laughs> 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 yeah, there's seven. And being a Jane Austen junkie, I, of course, thought of Lydia Bennett. I knew you were going to say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did. Totally. You're right on. Why did I? I knew you were, I actually wrote that down on my paper. <laughs> when you talk about authors, I would say, do, do you like Tom Robbins? I don't know Tom Robbins. Oh. Tell me what I'm missing. Oh. <laughs> well, there's All the Skinny Legs, which is a wonderful novel. And then another one called Still Life with Woodpecker. And it's a wonderful novel. He's very funny. I mean, just has that seven energy that I love. Eights, you want to talk about eights? Yeah, tell me about eights. I find eights fascinating. Yeah, aren't they? Because I just can't imagine. Oh, I know. I'm so different from an eight. Although fours and eights get along great. I'm a four uh, because both feel very misunderstood. Oh, interesting. Eights are the challengers. I like to call them sometimes the protectors or the defenders. These are people who have an underlying motivation to exert or assert, I should say, power and strength over the environment and other people in order because they, they want to deny or, or not acknowledge weakness or vulnerability in themselves. That was terrible syntax, but it was the best <laughs> I could do. They're notoriously blunt. They're aggressive. They're mm -hmm. combative. You know, when they're not very healthy, they've got that kind of mafia dawn kind of thing. They're larger than life personalities. They're just big. And I would say the icon of it is Zorba the Greek. Kazantzakis. Mm -hmm. and, and then I think as far as authors go, I think about Toni Morrison to me is a, a, a woman eight. I really admire that because I just, as someone who likes to keep the peace to a very unhealthy degree, my eight friends have me going, are you, you can't say that out loud, but they do every day, every hour. That's yeah. who they are. But they entertain me. Like, like I grew up with a mom who was an eight. I have a daughter who's an eight. And because they don't have very much editing, my mom in particular, who's 90, I mean, my gosh, you know, stuff comes out of her mouth and you go, you could not possibly have just said that. I just start laughing. Like it doesn't bug me in some, most days if I'm rested, <laughs> if I'm rested and not there, if I've been to my therapist in recent days, they're entertaining. They're huge, big personalities, take up a lot of room. I'm curious. I'm about to pick up the new collection from Curtis Sittenfeld, contemporary mm -hmm. author out of St. Louis. So she writes strong-willed female protagonists, and her new book is called You Think It, I'll Say It. And I just picked it up from the library yesterday, and I can see right. it from where I'm sitting. And now that we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, I don't know Curtis Sittenfeld's personality type, but that is an eight title, is it not? It is. And it will. Of course, you and I both know that probably the publisher had a lot to, lot to say. Oh, yeah. I don't know what's on the inside yet. We'll see. But I'm curious. What I would say is that it, it definitely has the aggressive energy. Three sevens and eights are the three most aggressive numbers on the Enneagram. These are people who go up against people. Now, that doesn't mean that they're aggressive in kind of a violent way. It right, just means right. that they go right at you, man. Mm -hmm. Fours, fives, and nines, we tend to be withdrawing types. You know, we tend to back away from people. Not We don't aggressively go at people. Mm -hmm. Those eights, man, that, that would be something that an eight would say. Like, I think it, I say it. They like to fancy themselves being people who uh, just are straight shooters, direct, nose-to-nose -nose types. And it can be entertaining. It can also be a little intimidating if, if you're somebody who is not very good with that kind of energy. I hear you. All right. I'm li really looking forward to what you say about nines. Well, I'm married to a nine. I'm the father of a nine. I have a lot of love for nines. And I think these peacemakers, mediators, as they're sometimes called, they have an underlying motivation to avoid conflict, to keep the peace, to maintain the status quo. 
to protect uh, the, an interior world and, and maintain and protect a world inside that's tranquil and harmonious and, you know, just easy going. They want to mm-hmm. keep the Hakuna Matata going inside. <laughs> as, a, as a friend of mine, a, a nine once said to me, he said, sometimes I feel like I'm just spa music. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, that is a little nine-ish. You know, it's just kind of like when they're not very healthy, this is sort of so laid back that you're on the edge of doze. You know what I mean? They're great songwriters. As I, I think I said that to you earlier. They're, because they can see the world through so many eyes, I think they make great novelists. So, for example, I wonder if the character Jaber Crow is a, is a nine. Don't you think he has that sensibility? Oh, yeah. In the choices he makes, especially late in the book. And by the way, I think as an author, Wallace Stegner is a nine. I love Wallace Stegner. Oh, well, why wouldn't you? And when you read a book like, um, not Angle of Repose, what was the one other one I loved? I hope it's Crossing to Safety, Ian. Yes, Crossing to Safety. Can I put it up there in my top 20 novels I've loved? That has a very nine feel to it. That relationship that they have, the reflectiveness, the peaceful reflection that goes on in it is just exquisite. Really beautiful. But there's not a lot of conflict in those pages. It doesn't have this, ah, craziness. No, it's, it's about tea bags. Yeah. Exactly. I just want you to know I noticed that you have not top three or top five or top 10, but top 20 novels. <laughs> I, I like that. Well, maybe I'm hedging. <laughs> I respect that. You're out of fear that you're going to ask me what they are. You know, I'm like, oh, I've got top 50. I couldn't I possibly name them all. I couldn't. Oh, yeah. I, I wonder if, what did I put this? Oh, well, let's go to ones because we didn't do ones, did we? Or we didn't. We started with twos. Oh my gosh, we got to hurry, right? Okay, so reformers, uh, the ones, sometimes called the improvers, often the, imp- the perfectionists. These are people who are motivated by a need to improve or perfect themselves, others, and the world around them to avoid fault and blame, criticism, making mistakes. These are people who want to be good. I mean that in the truest sense of the word. Good meaning and virtuous, uh, that sort of embody that. This is a real archetype in literature. And I think Victor Hugo's Inspector Javert is a one. For sure, I see that. There's a one that is so tight in the personality style. They're so rigid in it that even when he sees that grace is the right thing to do, he can't do it because he's so bound by law. You can do things right or you can do the right thing. And mm-hmm. he can't get away from, I got to do it. I've got to do things right. Mm-hmm. You know, so what does he do? He ends up, you know, committing suicide before the, at the end of the night because it's almost like I can't take the tension being stuck in this interstitial space. Mm-hmm. And, and you're in that space between grace and law. There was no gray for him. And that's all that when one's unhealthy, that's kind of where they live. Do you have oh, a one in mind? I could give you a Jane Austen character. Colonel Brandon. Oh my gosh, it totally is. Well, okay. It depends on if you want to go old or new, but I'm thinking like Atticus Finch. Oh my gosh. Oh, totally. And, and actually yeah. one of my favorite characters of all time. And Gregory yeah. Peck as a person was a one, I think. Look at the suit. Look at the khaki suit with the watch and the perfectly pressed shirt. But also that's the healthy one. That's a one who is morally heroic. They, they just embody goodness, do the right thing. Uh, not per- They're serious, not particularly funny. You're not going to sit around with a wand and slap your knee and, you know, just tell jokes all day long. They're usually too busy doing things to improve the world. He just stood on such a moral high ground and yet did it with humility without being kind of shaming. God, that's just a perfect one. And how about Hermione Granger? Uh, You bet. That comparing, judging mind. You think about her on the train scene where she's got the spell book out uh, in the first book when she's like, how many of you know this spell and this spell and that spell? (laughs) Every other kid has never even known that there were spells. They don't know anything about it yet. She's already ahead, you know, and, and, but she's comparing and judging. How am I doing against the rest? Am I better? Am I? Yeah, she's definitely got that one thing going on. For the most part, she's not an unhealthy one. There's nothing about her that you find grating. Do you? Well, she matures a lot from that, that obnoxious scene on the train where you want to roll your eyes with the other kids. I, you know, my kids grew up to Harry Potter. And mm-hmm. I, I, frankly, I'm up to my nose in Harry Potter you got to hand it to J.K. Rowling. She she actually developed characters over time, kept it up for a lot of books, mm-hmm. and she we owe her a great debt of gratitude for keeping our kids in their noses in paper. All right, twos, ready? I'm ready. Full circle. So they're sometimes called the helpers. I like my friend Beatrice Chestnut calls them the befrienders. These are people who have a need to be needed, serving the needs of others while denying and acknowledging that they themselves have personal needs. These are people who really are the, some of the most loving people you've ever met when they're healthy. When they're unhealthy, there's always a string attached. But one of the things that people sort of don't understand about twos is 
These are very ambitious people. Two, threes, and fours are very, the most image conscious numbers on the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And all three project images that are not true to who they true to who they really are. And so the two can do a lot of this flattery thing to kind of hypnotize people. And they like to find powerful people or people who are influential and kind of, you know, flatter them and then use them and then move on once they've gotten what they need. Again, that's the unhealthy archetype of the two. But people tend to think that these are all just people carrying around apple pies. You know what I mean? (laughs) They're church ladies. Church ladies that are a little, they have the capacity to be Wolverine too. Mm. You know, they, those nails can come out every now and then. Characters, you know, okay, I'll give you a Lord of the Rings one. Sam Gamgee. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite characters, actually. I think he's arguably the real hero of that book. Frodo begins to despair. Do you know Andrew Peterson at all? Yeah. So Andrew and I were together and he was talking about, you know, he's like a Tolkien fanatic. And he was just talking about how Tolkien thought that despair was a sin because it presumed that you knew the end of your story. And you don't. Frodo despaired. Like he just couldn't believe they were ever going to get that ring into the, you know, wherever it had to get to, wherever that fire thing, the lake or whatever. And then the irony, of course, is that Gollum is the one who saves the day by accident. Mm -hmm. But it's Sam who believes, who never gives up hope. And he carries Frodo the last Mm -hmm. way. It's very beautiful. Sam is the one who, he's the only one who had a couple of speeches in that thing. He and Gandalf, that made me cry. Remember when he's describing to Frodo about uh, the Shire and we're going to go back and it's just, oh, and Frodo's despairing and he's holding him up and there's just so much this helper love. Ah, anyway, that's a great character. But give me your two. I bet you, I have a hunch who maybe your two is because you, you like a certain period of writers. I like those as examples because so many times, even if you haven't read the stories or read them recently, you know a little bit about them. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. you if you live in English major world, no, I I feel like two show up in a lot of contemporary women's fiction. It's so easy to make a two, the mom or the sister yeah. or even the heroine who is fervently trying to do what she sees to be the right thing yeah. in relationship, which is really she's sabotaging herself, and it makes yeah. for a good forward plot drive. Interestingly, Scarlett O'Hara is an interesting two icon, maybe. And what you see there is that kind of baby-like, uh, coquettish kind of two mm-hmm. that you sometimes run into. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a type of two that's got that kind of they, – they kind of live in this perpetual childish kind of a little girl thing. And they feel a little entitled to be loved the way a little girl is to be loved. You know what I mean? That sounds like Scarlett O'Hara. Yeah, I mean, again, we, you, have, you always have to be careful that not every four is an artist, not every two is a grandmother with an mm-hmm. apple pie, not mm-hmm. every three is Gecko from the movie Wall Street. Those are all like just mm-hmm. silly stereotypes. These types are more complicated than all those. Oh, we almost got through the episode without using the word, but you really can't put people in boxes. And what, of course, makes people fascinated in novels is the question is, does this character see the glass box in which they live, which of course is hard because it's glass. Let's call that the in, the motivation that, that seems to run a lot of their lives. And will they wake up enough to get out of the box and find freedom? There's something so compelling about that. Yeah. It's almost as though we are trying to find clues about the nature of our own lives. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think I ever read a novel without maybe in the background without realizing it, thinking, well, let's find out how these people are doing it. Let's see if there's anything in here that can help me do life or understand life better than I do. And yeah. to, to, live, to live it more roundly. I hear you. Because you only get the one life, but then you have books. As far as we know. Mm, fair <laughs> you know, enough. All right, Ian, before we go. Yes, ma'am. Pick one of those 20 favorite novels oh, and give I it a plug. Knew, I knew, I knew. Ah, <laughs> uh, Okay. Did I ever tell you that at Christmas, I always give away copies of Oscar Ijuelos' book, Mr. Ives' Christmas? I don't know this book. Have you ever read Mr. Ives' Christmas? So he read, you know, Dance of the Mambo Kings. That one I know, but this Christmas book is new to me. Well, it's a lovely book about forgiveness. It's, in fact, if you like Stegner, I think you really like this book. So that's, that's a book I've always loved. Look at my shelf right now. Here's a little novel everybody should read. Mm-hmm. Jeanette Hines' book, The All of It. I don't know this one either. See, this is why we're talking books. Okay, that's a little sleeper. That's a book that came out, I don't know, 20 years ago and got great reviews and didn't get a lot of traction. And it's almost a novella. Interestingly, you know who champions this book is Ann Patchett. Really? You know, she lives here in Nashville Mm -hmm. and owns a wonderful bookstore, Parnassus here. Anyway, she went on a sort of a little little mini crusade to get that book into the hands of people because it is a lovely short novel. So, Well, I will track it down. 
Ian, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for talking the Enneagram in books with me today. It was the most fun I've had talking about the Enneagram in at least a week. (laughs) I'll take it. I really, I so enjoy what you do, Ian. I love your books on personality. I love your curiosity. I think about people, about characters. People need to talk more about fiction. We need defenders of fiction, people that are out there saying that if you want to plumb the depths of the world, uh, read a great story. So keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. Amen. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed this bookish introduction to the Enneagram, and I'd love to hear your opinions on favorite literary characters and their personality types. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 141, that's 141, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today, plus loads of resources if you'd like to investigate the Enneagram further. Make sure to check out Ian's book, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram journey to self-discovery, and my book, Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Person changes everything for more about building self-awareness through the Enneagram and other personality frameworks. Ian walks you through every type step by step with lots of examples. In my book, I tell my own story about discovering my Enneagram type, how it took me a long time and the difference it has made in my life, my work, and my relationships. Links to both books plus loads of other resources are posted in the show notes at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 141. Next week, we've got more library love coming your way. I'm chatting with children's librarian, Sarah Peden, about what it's like to serve the youngest members of the reading community. Here's a sneak peek. Sometimes to some people who are like library traditionalists, it hurts to hear people say that like a library is a more of a community center because you're like, no, it's, it's the books. It's about the shiny floors, the nice desks and light streaming through the windows and absolute silence for you to like sit and read. When... In reality, at least in like my library, and I know a lot of the libraries in my region, we are not quiet at all. Um, <laughs> yesterday we had 72 kids here eating ice pops, watching firemen do the hose on their fire truck. And like, it was loud. I was like, well, you know, if anybody came to the library today to have some peace and quiet, I'm sorry. Summer reading has started <laughs> in September. <laughs> That's plenty of book love for all ages coming your way next Tuesday. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.